0: Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Has this ever happened to you? You're driving on a straight stretch of road and all of a sudden your vehicle starts to, to drift either to the, to the right or, or to the left uh, or worse. It starts to do that as you apply the brake. Uh, what's so concerning about that is that, obviously, you can veer into another car. What is it that causes your vehicle to do that? Well, it's out of alignment. So what you do, you go to a mechanic and they make the necessary corrections so that you can start driving straight again. Here's the big idea, churches are a lot like cars in that regard there are times that they can get out of alignment. And when that happens, churches start to drift one way or the other. We see this in the New Testament. A guy who's like a master mechanic in the New Testament is a guy named Paul. And he writes these letters to several churches, and he's telling them, here's how to get back in alignment. How to get back in alignment with God's will because you're drifting. Some churches veer too far to the right. You're right. They are like ultra-conservative. They're even further right of God. It's like, you know, Jesus had some rules, we need more rules. The church at Galatia was like that, so Paul has to write that letter to the Galatians. They're all about the law, and whether or not you've got to become a Jew first before you can even become a Christian. So Paul has to write that letter, and... Make some adjustments. There's another church in the New Testament. The Corinthians. Well, they are way, way, way to the left. Here in this church, it's about people getting drunk at communion. You're not gonna get that chance today. This is not fermented. Just know that. Or what you know, hey, that guy over there married his mom. Paul has to write to them and reset their alignment. So the Apostle Paul is like a master mechanic, and he loves these churches, and, and he gets them back to where they should be. Where that brings us today is this letter he writes to the church at Colossae. That's a city. The name of the book is Colossians, and for the next three months, we're going to study together this letter written by the Apostle Paul it's written to believers who are holding fast to the, to the right faith, but they're being threatened by false teaching. So, Paul writes this letter to encourage them, and we're going to start by looking at just the first two verses. Most Bibles, if you have a Bible that has headings in sections, would just label these first two verses as greeting. But I'm going to tell you, and you're about to hear, this is much more than a Hey, how are you doing? In just these two verses, we're going to see four things you got to know if you want to grow. And if you're a new Christian, we want you to grow in your understanding of Jesus. If you're a seasoned Christian, we want you to mature in your understanding of Jesus. The exciting thing about Jesus and faith and the Bible is that it doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, there's always something to learn. So the first issue is you got to know who to learn from. Now, none of us are born into this world with understanding and, 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 and wisdom and, you know, somebody had to teach us things. Somebody had to teach you how to walk and talk and read and write everything we know we learned from somebody. And then part of our maturity is, who do we trust to continue learning from? And let me say this, the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the most significant person who's ever lived in the history of the world. More books written about Him, more songs sung to Him than anyone ever. One out of every three people alive today claim to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. And what you think about Him is the most important thing about you. So the question is, who will you trust? Who will you believe to learn about Him? Who will you consider a credible source about the most important person who's ever lived? Well, Paul is going to begin, you'll see in just a second, by introducing himself and trying to establish himself as that credible witness that we want to hear from and learn from. So, here's how he begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. He begins by referring to himself as an apostle. Now, there's two ways to understand this word, A There is the office of apostle, that is, somebody who's been chosen by Jesus, like the twelve disciples. So often, the apostles, disciples are used interchangeably. Or B, the word apostle is used as kind of a spiritual fathering, if you will, spiritual parent, pastors, church leaders. So, if you read ahead in Colossians, you'll discover that the church at Colossae already has a pastor. His name is Epaphras. He was probably the founder of the church, but over him is another layer of leadership, and that's the Apostle Paul. Now, you may find this interesting. Paul never visited that church. But, and this could be said of all churches, That church in Colossae is only healthy if it has healthy governance. The same could be said of every nation on the earth. They're only as healthy as long as they have healthy governance. In the Colossian church, there is local leadership. There is Epaphras, the pastor. There are, I'm sure, elders and deacons there, but over them is the Apostle Paul. He's like a pastor to the pastors. He's never visited the church. He's never set foot in the city. And here's another interesting piece, do you know where Paul is when he writes this letter? He's in prison, he's in jail. He's doing prison ministry from the inside. Let me tell you a little bit more about the Apostle Paul because he is such a towering figure in history, not just church history. There is a reason you should submit to his credibility. Because Paul started off as a non-Christian. I mean a really, 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 really non-Christian. About as hostile toward Jesus and believers as you can get. When we first meet him in the book of Acts, he is running with a pack of religious zealots who are out to destroy Christianity. He thinks he's doing the right thing. But just because you're doing something in the name of God doesn't necessarily mean it's according to the will of God. And Paul is the worst kind of humans. He's angry, he's violent, and he's religious. And he and his group are like a pack of wolves, and Paul is the alpha. How do we know this? They go from town to town and city to city, uh, persecuting, opposing, imprisoning, and even murdering Christians. It happens against one of the early church leaders, a guy named Stephen. Read Acts chapter 6, the last half of it, and all of chapter 7. They end up murdering Stephen. Paul is wanting to put fear in Christians to try to dissuade them from following Jesus Christ. Keep reading in Acts. And in chapter 9, God gets a hold of Paul. He was then called Saul. That was his original name. God gets a hold of him and changed his life. He gives him a new identity in Jesus Christ. He gives him a new mission. And he changes his name from Saul to Paul. It was a radical conversion. But as you can imagine, the early church... Kind of squirmed a little bit as Paul was approaching their town and their church. You know, is this just a farce? Yeah, he says he's now a Christian. Is that a farce so that we trust him and, and, and welcome him into our group? So it's like they, they have a, a pastor's prayer meeting and they say, okay, we want to circle up around Paul. Now, everybody close your eyes. And they're like, uh uh. <laughs> And he transitions from hating Jesus to loving Jesus, from persecuting Christians to being a persecuted Christian, and something radical has happened. It makes him a credible authority because he was the least likely to ever know, love, and serve Jesus. Now, some people want to dismiss so much of the Bible because they think, well, It was written such a long time ago. I mean, that's archaic stuff, right? And most of the people were uneducated. Well, let me share this about Paul. Not even talking about anybody else who wrote in the Bible. Paul knew Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, probably Latin because he was also a Roman citizen. He was incredibly articulate. He studied under the leading rabbi of his day. And we know all this from his writings. He wrote at least 13 letters in the New Testament. So he brings a tremendous amount of influence and impact. In his roughly 10 years of ministry, he walked up to 20 miles a day. And when he went into a new town, there was usually an angry mob awaiting trying to kill him. Paul is a controversial figure. He says he bears the marks of Jesus on his back. He's been flogged. He suffers unbelievably, spends time in prison, and while in prison, he still leaves an impact and an influence on the guards, much less an impact and an influence on the world through his letters. So that's Paul and why we should be totally trust, trusting him as a witness and his authority over us because God has chosen him and God has inspired him to write almost half the books of the New Testament. So the question is, why would we trust anyone else today to tell us about Jesus than someone like Paul? You may say, well, okay, you're telling me Paul was smart, well, I know a lot of educated people. Okay, were they ever as close to the events of Jesus as Paul was? I mean, Paul's ministry begins some 20 to 25 years. Uh, after Jesus' resurrection. And he he had an encounter with Jesus. How do we know? Not only does he tell us, but how else can you explain the radical change in Paul from one who was completely hostile to Jesus to a lover of Jesus? That's the person I want to hear from. That's the person I want to learn from. Number two, got to know God's will. Same verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Did Paul just put his name out there on a resume for an apostle job? No. He wasn't on LinkedIn. That's not how it worked. His role was not a job. It was a calling. There's a big difference between the two. A job you can quit A calling you're not supposed to quit. A job is a paycheck. A calling is, I've got to do this. Anyone who feels called to ministry, you need to be called. A job is something you choose. A calling is something God chooses for you. The Apostle Paul is called by the will of God. How else can you explain a guy who keeps preaching, going to prison, getting beaten and hated and despised with such resilience that every morning he gets up and he says, here I am, Jesus, let's do it again, unless it was a calling. Paul knew God's will for his life. You need to know God's will for your life. Some of you may feel God's will come upon you in a supernatural way like Paul did. Most of us will get a sense of God's will for for our lives in a more natural, general way. For me, I was a sophomore in high school when I felt God was calling me into pastoral ministry. Now, it took 15 years for that to finally sink in, get clear, go to seminary, complete seminary. For Lori and I to come to North Carolina... And Benton Heights Presbyterian Church in Monroe, a talent we had never heard of. This was a calling of God. And for 23 years, we've loved you and been loved by you. While Lori has been an integral part of this with me, God has a different calling on her life. Part of that was to be married to me, keep your stories and jokes to yourself. <laughs> part of that was being a mom. Part of that is being a pharmacist, and she gets to use that God-given God-giving calling as a pharmacist to help others, and one of her greatest loves that she's always wanted to do is medical missions, and she was able to do that last year. Many of you know she went to Lebanon and, and worked with Syrian refugees there in mission, in medical missions. Lord willing, next month she's going to Guatemala to do a week uh, with another church's ministry team. You may ask, well, how do I know God's will for me? Well, first of all, the big picture is God's will comes from God's Word. So, Lori is married to me. She knows God's will for her is to love me, forgive me, put up with me. If being married was a job for her, she would have given her notice a long time ago. But she gets that from the Word of God, relationships, husband, wife, parents, children, those are described in God's Word. How many of you know that a lot of what God wants for your life is contained in God's Word? You've been given a job, even if it's your calling, you've been given a job. The Bible says to work wholeheartedly. With earnestness and and, and integrity, as if you're doing it unto the Lord. Whatever you're doing, do it as unto the Lord. That's God's will. God's will is also that you love Him. That's God's will for every person. But then you say, okay, what specifically does God want me to do? Well, sometimes God's will for you starts with a burden. Some of you love children, God's given you that burden. Some of you have a heart for single moms or abused, some certain group of people in certain circumstances. Some of you really love working with your hands. Some of you have a heart for teaching and on and on. Whatever your job is, do it unto the Lord, honoring and glorifying Him in all you do. Whatever God's will is for you, you do that. And your walk in God's will will allow you to be persevering and resilient like the Apostle Paul was. If it were just a job for him, he would have quit. But it's a calling, and they couldn't stop him until they kill him. So you've got to know who to learn from. You've got to know God's will. Number three, you've got to know who you are. It starts with who is God. And then who are you? So we're talking identity here. And the verse, hey, by the way, congratulations, you finished verse 1. Here's verse 2. Paul addresses this letter. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your identity. And your identity determines your destiny. In our culture, we use the language of identity as self-help, self-love, self-love self-awareness, self-esteem, all of which holds in common what? Self, without any reference to God. What that means is, according to secular psychology, that that is not biblically based, the center is the self, not God, and the reference point of identity for you begins and ends with you. Identity is the one thing that changes everything, because when you know who you are, then you know what to do. And if you don't have your identity in God, you'll only get your identity in relationship to other people. So it's all about comparing yourself. Well, they're the smart one, which makes you the <laughs> not-so-smart one. There's a euphemism. Good job. <laughs> They're the pretty one. That makes me the. Not the so pretty one. <laughs> They're the successful one. That makes me the. Yeah, not so. Yeah, okay, the loser, whatever. <laughs> so when we start comparing ourselves with others, your identity ends up in one of two places either pride or despair. You know, the Bible says the truth will set you free. Some of you are living in bondage to an identity that was not given to you by God. Go back to this verse, who are you? God's holy people. Many other Bible translations uses the word saint. You are God's saints. To the saints in Colossae, have you ever thought of yourself as a saint? Usually we think of ourselves as sinners, right? Which is true. The Bible declares that's the case for you and me. We are sinners by choice and by nature. We were born that way. Now hear me on this. We are sinners. But that's not our true identity. That's our activity. Sin explains many aspects of your existence. But saint explains your true identity, the true identity of who you are. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do you go from being a sinner to a saint? Two words. I just said it in Romans 8.1, and it's up on the screen in this one. Those two words are in Christ. That's how you go from being a sinner to a saint in Christ. That means you've given your sins over to Jesus, and you've received His forgiveness, His salvation, His transformation. You see, your identity is in Him. That means the the center of our destiny, where we're headed, isn't really just heaven, that's a place. Our identity is in Jesus, it's a person. You belong to Him. And Jesus has literally traded places with you on the cross. And number four, you got to know the fatherhood of God. He ends this greeting with grace and peace to you from God our Father. Here's what you need to know. Your relationship with God is paternal, not performance-based. Most of your relationships are performance-based. Your job, true or false, is performance-based. You don't do your job, you don't get to keep your job. All right, what about school? Performance-based? Uh-huh, yeah, I'm seeing yes. If you don't think it is, then welcome to the fourth grade for the 13th time. What about sports? Performance-based? Absolutely. We keep score. Somebody wins, somebody loses. But your relationship with God is not performance-based. It's paternal. What's the difference? How many of you are fathers? What did your child do to earn the right to be called your child? Nothing. What's going to stop them from being your child? Nothing. What if they run away from home and are awful? Well, then your child is a runaway, awful child who's still your child. Do you realize all religions apart from the bible meaning apart from christianity all spirituality apart from the bible are performance based you got to die and be reincarnated and pay off your karmic debt it's something you got to earn or you got to go to that sacred place and and pray a certain prayer so many times a day or you got to do enough good deeds to outweigh your Bad deeds, you got to perform. You got to produce. You got to keep score. And at the end, maybe God will love you. God loves you like a dad loves his kids, God loves you as a father. Maybe you didn't have a dad who gave grace the relationship with with him was not one that was peaceful grace and peace to you from God the Father God is a father who gives grace and peace so that you run to him and not feel like you have to run from him this morning in an act of worship in a way we get to run to Jesus we get to run to him the one who gave his life for us on the cross because there's no way we could pay the penalty for our sins just couldn't happen we're not good enough we can't certainly pay it off. We can't earn it. There's no way to do it. It's simply faith and trust in Him who did it for us. That's what this meal is all about. It's realizing that we are receiving the bread and the cup as Jesus to His disciples that Thursday night before the cross the next day, said, this is my body and the bread which is broken for you. He took that bread, He broke it after He gave thanks, and He said, this is for you. This is my body that's going to be broken for you. And how after the supper, He took a cup and pouring into it, He says, this cup represents a new covenant, my blood poured out for your sins. You see, when they celebrated the Passover together, which is what they were doing that Thursday night, that Passover meal included four cups. The third one, the one right after the meal, was the cup of salvation. It was the one that Jesus took, poured into it. and said, there is a new salvation that's coming. It's my blood poured out for your sins. And then as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your good news that is always speaking life to us. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about Jesus Christ. And we thank You, Lord, that You give us Your hope, Your grace, Your peace, Your strength, Your forgiveness. your righteousness. And we get to know you. You want us to know you. And as Father, that speaks of an incredible relationship. You love us. We are your kids. We thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you that we now, in in taking this bread and this cup, Again, our, our bringing in His lifeblood to us. And we thank you in the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.